Chapter four part one of Principia Ethica. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Frederick Carlson. Principia Ethica by G. E. Moore. Chapter four Metaphysical Ethics. Sixty six. In this chapter I propose to deal with a type of ethical theory which is exemplified in the ethical views of the Stoics, of Spinoza, of Kant, and especially of a number of modern writers whose views in this respect are mainly due to the influence of Hegel. These ethical theories have this in common, that they use some metaphysical proposition as a ground for inferring some fundamental proposition of ethics. They all imply, and many of them expressly hold, that ethical truths follow logically from metaphysical truths, that ethics should be based on metaphysics. And the result is that they all describe the supreme good in metaphysical terms. What, then, is to be understood by metaphysical? I use the term, as I explained in chapter 2, in opposition to natural. I call those philosophers preeminently metaphysical who have recognized most clearly that not everything which is, is a natural object. Metaphysicians have, therefore, the great merit of insisting that our knowledge is not confined to the things which we can touch and see and feel. They have always been much occupied not only with that other class of natural object which consists in mental facts, but also with the class of objects or properties of objects which certainly do not exist in time, are not therefore parts of nature, and which, in fact, do not exist at all. To this class, I have said, belongs what we mean by the adjective good. It is not goodness, but only the things or qualities which are good, which can exist in time, can have the duration and begin and cease to exist, can be objects of perception. But the most prominent members of this class are perhaps numbers. It is quite certain that two natural objects may exist, but it is equally certain that two itself does not exist and never can. Two and two are four, but that does not mean that either two or four exists. Yet it certainly means something. Two is somehow, although it does not exist. And it is not only simple terms of propositions, the objects about which we know truths, that belong to this class. The truths which we know about them form, perhaps, a still more important subdivision. No truth does, in fact, exist. But this is peculiarly obvious with regard to truths like two and two or four, in which the objects about which they are truths do not exist either. It is with the recognition of such truths as these, truths which have been called universal, and of their essential unlikeness to what we can touch and see and feel, that metaphysics proper begins. Such universal truths have always played a large part in the reasonings of metaphysicians from Plato's time till now, and that they have directed attention to the difference between these truths and what I have called natural objects is the chief contribution to knowledge which distinguished them from that other class of philosophers, empirical philosophers, to which most Englishmen have belonged. 
but though if we are to define metaphysics by the contribution which it has actually made to knowledge we should have to say that it has emphasized the importance of objects which do not exist at all metaphysicians themselves have not recognized this they have indeed recognized and insisted that there are or may be objects of knowledge which do not exist in time or at least which we cannot perceive and in recognizing the possibility of these as an object of investigation they have it may be admitted done a service to mankind but they have in general supposed that whatever does not exist in time must at least exist elsewhere if it is to be at all that whatever does not exist in nature must exist in some supersensible reality whether timeless or not consequently they have held that the truths with which they have been occupied over and above the objects of perception were in some way truths about such supersensible reality if therefore we are to define metaphysics not by what it has attained but by what it has attempted we should say that it consists in the attempt to obtain knowledge by processes of reasoning of what exists but is not a part of nature metaphysicians have actually held that they could give us such knowledge of non-natural existence they have held that their science consists in giving us such knowledge as can be supported by reasons of that supersensible reality of which religion professes to give us a fuller knowledge without any reason when therefore i spoke above of metaphysical propositions i meant propositions about the existence of something supersensible of something which is not an object of perception and which cannot be inferred from what is an object of perception by the same rules of inference by which we infer the past and future of what we call nature and when i spoke of metaphysical terms i meant terms which refer to qualities of such a supersensible reality which do not belong to anything natural I admit that metaphysics should investigate what reasons there may be for belief in such a supersensible reality, since I hold that its peculiar province is the truths about all objects which are not natural objects. And I think that the most prominent characteristic of metaphysics in history has been its profession to prove the truth about non-natural existence. I define metaphysical, therefore, by a reference to supersensible reality, although i think that the only non-natural objects about which it has succeeded in obtaining truth are objects which do not exist at all so much i hope will suffice to explain what i mean by the term metaphysical and to shew that it refers to a clear and important distinction it was not necessary for my purpose to make the definition exhaustive or to shew that it corresponds in essentials with established usage the distinction between nature and a supersensible reality is very familiar and very important and since the metaphysician endeavours to prove things with regard to supersensible reality and since he deals largely in truths which are not mere natural facts it is plain that his arguments and errors if any will be of a more subtle kind than those which i have dealt with under the name of naturalism for these two reasons it seemed convenient to treat metaphysical ethics by themselves sixty seven 
i have said that those systems of ethics which i propose to call metaphysical are characterized by the fact that they describe the supreme good in metaphysical terms and this has now to be explained as meaning that they describe it in terms of something which they hold does exist but does not exist in nature in terms of a supersensible reality a metaphysical ethics is marked by the fact that it makes the assertion that which would be perfectly good is something which exists but is not natural that which has some characteristic possessed by a supersensible reality such an assertion was made by the stoics when they asserted that a life in accordance with nature was perfect for they did not mean by nature what i have so defined but something supersensible which they inferred to exist and which they held to be perfectly good such an assertion again is made by spinoza when he tells us that we are more or less perfect in proportion as we are more or less closely united with absolute substance by the intellectual love of god such an assertion is made by kant when he tells us that his kingdom of ends is the ideal and such finally is made by modern writers who tell us that the final and perfect end is to realize our true selves a self different both from the whole and from any part of that which exists here and now in nature now it is plain that such ethical principles have a merit not possessed by naturalism in recognizing that for perfect goodness much more is required than any quantity of what exists here and now or can be inferred as likely to exist in the future and moreover it is quite possible that their assertions should be true if we only understand them to assert that something which is real possesses all the characteristics necessary for perfect goodness but this is not all that they assert they also imply as i said that this ethical proposition follows from some proposition which is metaphysical that the question what is real has some logical bearing upon the question what is good it was for this reason that i described metaphysical ethics in chapter two as based upon the naturalistic fallacy and that a knowledge of what is real supplies reason for holding certain things to be good in themselves is either implied or expressly asserted by all those who define the supreme good in metaphysical terms this contention is part of what is meant by saying that ethics should be based on metaphysics it is meant that some knowledge of supersensible reality is necessary as a premise for correct conclusions as to what ought to exist this view is for instance plainly expressed in the following statements the truth is that the theory of ethics which seems most satisfactory has a metaphysical basis if we rest our view of ethics on the idea of the development of ideal self or of the rational universe the significance of this cannot be made fully apparent without a metaphysical examination of the nature of self nor can its validity be established except by a discussion of the reality of the rational universe the validity of an ethical conclusion about the nature of the ideal it is here asserted cannot be established except by considering the question whether that ideal is real such an assertion involves the naturalistic fallacy it rests upon the failure to receive that any truth which asserts 
this is good in itself, is quite unique in kind, that it cannot be reduced to any assertion about reality, and therefore must remain unaffected by any conclusions we may reach about the nature of reality. This confusion as to the unique nature of ethical truths is, I have said, involved in all those ethical theories which I have called metaphysical. It is plain that, but for some confusion of the sort, no one would think it worthwhile even to describe the supreme good in metaphysical terms. If, for instance, we are told that the ideal consists in a realization of the true self, the very word suggests that the fact that the self in question is true is supposed to have some bearing on the fact that it is good. All the ethical truths which can possibly be conveyed by such an assertion would be just as well conveyed by saying that the ideal consisted in the realization of a particular kind of self, which might be either real or purely imaginary. Metaphysical ethics, then, involves the supposition that ethics can be based on metaphysics, and our first concern with them is to make clear that this supposition must be false. 68. In what way can the nature of supersensible reality possibly have a bearing upon ethics? I have distinguished two kinds of ethical questions, which are far too commonly confused with one another. Ethics, as commonly understood, has to answer both the question, what ought to be, and the question, what ought we to do. The second of these questions can only be answered by considering what effects our actions will have. A complete answer to it would give us that department of ethics which may be called the doctrine of means or practical ethics. And upon this department of ethical inquiry it is plain that the nature of a supersensible reality may have a bearing. If, for instance, metaphysics could tell us not only that we are immortal, but also in any degree what effects our actions in this life will have upon our condition in a future one, such information would have an undoubted bearing upon the question what we ought to do. The Christian doctrine of heaven and hell are in this way highly relevant to practical ethics. But it is worthy of notice that the most characteristic doctrines of metaphysics are such as either have no such bearing upon practical ethics or have a purely negative bearing, involving the conclusion that there is nothing which we ought to do at all. They profess to tell us the nature not of a future reality, but of one that is eternal and which therefore no actions of ours can have power to alter. Such information may, indeed, have relevance to practical ethics, but it must be of a purely negative kind. For, if it holds not only that such an eternal reality exists, but also, as is commonly the case, that nothing else is real, that nothing either has been, is now, or will be real in time, then truly it will follow that nothing we can do will ever bring any good to pass. For it is certain that our actions can only affect the future, and if nothing can be real in the future, we can certainly not hope ever to make any good thing real. It would follow, then, that there can be nothing which we ought to do. We cannot possibly do any good, for neither our efforts nor any result which they may seem to affect have any real existence. But this consequence, though it follows strictly from many metaphysical doctrines, is rarely drawn. Although a metaphysician may say that nothing is real but that which is eternal, 
you will generally allow that there is some reality also in the temporal, and his doctrine of an eternal reality need not interfere with practical ethics, if he allows that, however good the eternal reality may be, yet some things will also exist in time, and that the existence of some will be better than that of others. It is, however, worth while to insist upon this point, because it is rarely fully realized. If it is maintained that there is any validity at all in practical ethics, that any proposition which asserts we ought to do so and so can have any truth, this contention can only be consistent with the metaphysics of an eternal reality, under two conditions. One of these is, one, that the true eternal reality which is to be our guide cannot, as is implied by calling it true, be the only true reality. For a moral rule bidding us realize a certain end can only be justified if it is possible that that end should at least partially be realized. Unless our efforts can affect the real existence of some good, however little, we certainly have no reason for making them. And if the eternal reality is the sole reality, then nothing good can possibly exist in time. We can only be told to try to bring into existence something which we know beforehand cannot possibly exist. If it is said that what exists in time can only be a manifestation of the true reality, it must at least be allowed that the manifestation is another true reality, a good which we really can cause to exist, for the production of something quite unreal, even if it were possible, cannot be a reasonable end of action. But if the manifestation of that which eternally exists is real, then that which eternally exists is not the sole reality. And the second condition which follows from such a metaphysical principle of ethics is, too, that the eternal reality cannot be perfect, cannot be the sole good. For just as the reasonable rule of conduct requires that what we are told to realize should be capable of being truly real, so it requires that the realization of this ideal shall be truly good. It is just that which can be realized by our efforts, the appearance of the eternal in time, or whatsoever else is allowed to be attainable, which must be truly good, if it is to be worth our efforts. That the eternal reality is good will by no means justify us in aiming at its manifestation, unless that manifestation itself be also good. For the manifestation is different from the reality, its difference is allowed, when we are told that it cannot be made to exist, whereas the reality itself exists unalterably. And the existence of this manifestation is the only thing which we can hope to effect. That also is admitted. If, therefore, the moral maxim is to be justified, it is the existence of this manifestation, as distinguished from the existence of its corresponding reality, which must be truly good. The reality may be good, too. But to justify the statement that we ought to produce anything, it must be maintained that just that thing itself, and not something else which may be like it, is truly good. If it is not true that the existence of the manifestation will add something to the sum of the good in the universe, then we have no reason to aim at making it exist. And if it is true that it will add something to the sum of good, then the existence of that which is eternal cannot be perfect by itself 
it cannot include the whole of possible goods metaphysics then will have a bearing upon practical ethics upon the question what we ought to do but the most characteristic metaphysical doctrines those which profess to tell us not about the future but about the nature of an eternal reality can either have no bearing upon this practical question or else must have a purely destructive bearing for it is plain that what exists eternally cannot be affected by our actions and only what is affected by our actions can have a bearing on their value as means but the nature of an eternal reality either admits no inference as to the results of our actions except in so far as it can also give us information about the future and how it can do this is not plain or else if as is usual it is maintained to be the sole reality and the sole good it shows that no results of our actions can have any value whatever sixty nine but this bearing upon practical ethics such as it is is not what is commonly meant when it is maintained that ethics must be based on metaphysics it is not the assertion of this relation which i have taken to be characteristic of metaphysical ethics what metaphysical writers commonly maintain is not merely that metaphysics can help us to decide what the effects of our actions will be but that it can tell us which among possible effects will be good and which will be bad they profess that metaphysics is a necessary basis for an answer to that other and primary ethical question what ought to be what is good in itself that no truth about what is real can have any logical bearing upon the answer to this question has been proved in chapter one to suppose that it has implies the naturalistic fallacy all that remains for us to do is therefore to expose the main errors which seem to have lent plausibility to this fallacy in its metaphysical form if we ask what bearing can metaphysics have upon the question what is good the only possible answer is obviously and absolutely none we can only hope to enforce conviction that this answer is the only true one by answering the question why has it been supposed to have such a bearing we shall find that metaphysical writers seem to have failed to distinguish the primary ethical question what is good from various other questions and to point out these distinctions will serve to confirm the view that their profession to base ethics on metaphysics is solely due to confusion seventy and first of all there is an ambiguity in the very question what is good to which it seems some influence must be attributed the question may mean either which among existing things are good or else what sort of things are good what are the things which whether they are real or not ought to be real and of these two questions it is plain that to answer the first we must know both the answer to the second and also the answer to this question what is real it asks for a catalogue of all the good things there are in the universe and also which of them are good upon this question then our metaphysics would have a bearing if it can tell us what is real it would help us to complete the list of things which are both real and good but to make such a list is not the business of ethics so far as it inquires what is good its business is finished when it has completed the list of things which ought to exist whether they do exist or not 
and if our metaphysics is to have any bearing upon this part of the ethical problem it must be because the fact that something is real gives a reason for thinking that it or something else is good whether it be real or not that any such fact can give any such reason is impossible but it may be suspected that the contrary supposition has been encouraged by the failure to distinguish between the assertion this is good when it means this sort of thing is good or this would be good if it existed and the assertion this existing thing is good the latter proposition obviously cannot be true unless the thing exists and hence the proof of the thing's existence is a necessary step to its proof both propositions however in spite of this immense difference between them are commonly expressed in the same terms we use the same words when we assert an ethical proposition about a subject that is actually real and when we assert it about a subject considered as merely possible in this ambiguity of language we have then a possible source of error which regard to the bearing of truths that assert reality upon truths that assert goodness and that this ambiguity is actually neglected by those metaphysical writers who profess that the supreme good consists in an eternal reality may be shown in the following way we have seen in considering the possible bearing of metaphysics upon practical ethics that since what exists eternally cannot possibly be affected by our actions no practical maxim can possibly be true if the sole reality is eternal this fact as i said is commonly neglected by metaphysical writers they assert both of the two contradictory propositions that the sole reality is eternal and that its realization in the future is a good too professor mackenzie we saw asserts that we ought to aim at the realization of the true self or the rational universe and yet professor mackenzie holds as the word true plainly implies that both the true self and the rational universe are eternally real where we have already a contradiction in the supposition that what is eternally real can be realized in the future and it is comparatively unimportant whether or not we add to this the further contradiction involved in the supposition that the eternal is the sole reality that such contradiction should be supposed valid can only be explained by a neglect of the distinction between a real subject and the character which that real subject possesses what is eternally real may indeed be realized in the future if by this be only meant the sort of thing which is eternally real but when we assert that a thing is good what we mean is that its existence or reality is good and the eternal existence of a thing cannot possibly be the same good as the existence in time of what in a necessary sense is nevertheless the same thing when therefore we are told that the future realization of the true self is good this can at most only mean that the future realization of a self exactly like the self which is true and exists eternally is good if this fact were clearly stated instead of consistently ignored by those who advocate the view that the supreme good can be defined in these metaphysical terms it seems probable that the view that a knowledge of reality is necessary to a knowledge of the supreme good would lose part of its plausibility that that at which we ought to aim cannot possibly be that which is eternally real even if it be exactly like it 
and that the eternal reality cannot possibly be the sole good, these two propositions seem sensibly to diminish the probability that ethics must be based on metaphysics. It is not very plausible to maintain that because one thing is real, therefore something like it, which is not real, would be good. It seems, therefore, that some of the plausibility of metaphysical ethics may be reasonably attributed to the failure to observe that verbal ambiguity whereby this is good may mean either this real thing is good or the existence of this thing, whether it exists or not, would be good. End of chapter 4, part 1